Minor profits. Let's start with proving why the class is worthwhile, which is our knowledge of the minor profits is probably not so good. So just take a minute. You can write down or you can just do it in your head, but look over this list of proper nouns and see how many you recognize, how many you could give a one sentence. That's what this is. Total bonus points if you can name the minor profit in which you find these proper nouns. <laughs> All right, let's walk through some of these. Jezreel is the second capital of the northern kingdom, and you would probably recognize that because in Hosea it's, it's mentioned and it's where the confrontation between Elijah and King Ahab takes place. Ephraim is one of the tribes of Israel. It's the house of Joseph when you add Manasseh to it. It's the biggest tribe of Israel. And that's why oftentimes in the minor prophets or the major prophets, they will refer to all of Israel as Ephraim. Um, and that's going to be something we got to get used to is they're going to refer to the kingdoms uh, using a lot of different words. So sometimes Israel will mean all of Israel. Makes sense. But sometimes Israel will just mean the northern kingdom. Mm -hmm. And we'll cover that in just a little bit. Uh, sometimes Israel will be referred to as Ephraim. It just depends on the point the author's trying to make. Um, so there will be meaning in why they use that particular term. Pethuel was Joel's father or Joel's father. I'm, uh, you'll hear me on Minor Prophets be very inconsistent with their names because my general perspective is we pronounce people's names with English pronunciation. We do that all the time. Um, to try and pronounce a foreign name with foreign pronunciation but without a foreign accent is pretty difficult. Um, and so... Yeah, do the accent. Yeah, uh, it is fun. I was, the, new new Supreme Court cases this week, and so I'm listening to cases, and it's always fun. It makes me chuckle every time to hear Justice Sotomayor say her own last name, which sounds like like a piece of art when she says it. I mean, it's just this majestic Sotomayor, and then to hear uh, the Chief Justice say Justice Sotomayor, <laughs> it's, it's great. Uh, Jehoshaphat is the son of Asa. He was the king. We read about that in Joel, and the Moabites create problems for Jehoshaphat. Uh, oops. Haziel, court official, Aramean king who led the Arameans in battle against Israel. And in the prophets, the meaning of people's names will take on great significance. And it's just one of those reminders that God is sovereign over big things and little things because these parents named their child what they wanted to name their child. And these parents named their children something that the, the name had meaning that God intended to use in his working out of history. Uh, and both of those are true. Beersheba is the largest city in the Negev desert. We'll read about that in Amos. Taman is one of the clans of the Edomites. Joppa, I hope we got this one since I did preach Jonah, but that's the city uh, where Jonah fled, trying to get to Tarshish. 
Omri is the king of Israel and father of Abraham. He's the king when Micah is prophesying. Akzib is a coastal town near Tyre. Chaldeans is um, Chaldean is a is a part of Babylonia near Ur. That's why you probably knew the phrase Ur of the Chaldeans, right? Um, and they were constantly harassing Israel. You're always worried that the Chaldeans are going to come in and make some trouble. So the conclusion, we don't know the minor prophets really well. <laughs> uh, and things that we've learned, we forget. And often with the minor prophets, it's not so much of a forgetting problem as we never learned it the first time problem. When, when, uh, when we're doing our, if we have a Bible reading plan, and we're trying to read through the Bible in a couple of years or in a year. Uh, we probably don't slow down when we're reading the minor prophets to look into the Chaldeans. To look at, we just read the words, read the verses. We look for the more theological stuff that we can directly pull out of it, and then we move on. So part of our lack of familiarity here is the location in the canon. It's a part of the Bible we feel like we're just trying to get through. It's in between the wisdom literature and the gospels and people love wisdom literature because you can read the psalms you can read the proverbs and you get something out of it real quick and of course we love the gospels and yet in between these two are these prophets where there's just a lot of stuff going on uh it, it it's not in a high traffic part of our bibles and so they tend to get lost and then if we do stop to read them The prophets have all of these themes and concepts that are either weird or complicated, unknown to us. Um, Why didn't that work? Um, Or that we don't really want to spend our Bible study time studying. Lots of adultery, lots of prostitution, lots of social injustice in the prophets, bug eating, visions, nakedness. You name some weird Bible story that you remember, it's probably in one of the prophets. That's how most of this stuff goes. And so um, there's just these concepts that are strange to us that make it less likely that we would study this. There's also, we don't really know the history as well. Um, so we, we want the theology out of the prophets when we can get it, but we don't want to take the extra time that would be required to learn the history, to think about the context, so that we get more theological meaning from that. We would have to have a better understanding with the history of Israel to really get that. Um, and then last, we, we struggle with the genre. Um, what do you do with prophecy? How do you interpret it? How do you apply it? We'll talk about that a little bit at the end today of a couple of takeaways that I think are valuable for our understanding of the prophets. Um, How do we know that these prophets are to be believed? There's a whole bunch of talk about false prophets. What are the signs of a true prophet? Um, Where are the proofs? Are there proofs from the the history books, biblical and extra-biblical history books, that say that these things really did happen and that these were true prophets? Um, So just what do we do with the genre itself? It's not nearly as straightforward as wisdom literature. Take this and apply it to your life. It's not even as straightforward as uh, biblical narrative. Either act like this or don't act like this. 
because prophecy always has this layer on top of it that's like it's a it's a living metaphor it's a it's a living uh, analogy and so we just would have to get a little bit more familiar with the with the genre to know how to use the prophets well and so that's what we're going to do over the course of the class our goal is we want to learn the history a little better not that we can be experts in this stuff but know it well enough to find even more value out of the biblical texts here Uh, and then we'll learn the themes so that even the stuff that's weird we know why it's weird we don't want to be in a position where we think the bible's filled with all of this goofy stuff for no reason or for reasons that aren't important as opposed to when somebody says yeah isn't your religion the one where the prophet eats bugs you you can say yeah that's weird let me tell you why Um, that would be that would be a better way to understand scripture So first, let's go through a big Bible history timeline. We're going to go through this pretty quickly. I'm going to try to use mostly big events that you already know about, but to help put them in order, because I think it matters a lot that you understand the flow of Israel's history. So you're talking about 2100 BC, and these dates are rough. When I am dealing with 2000 years before Christ, these are approximate dates. Not like I'm off by 5,000, but I might be off by 20. Um, 2100 BC, roughly, God is when God makes his promise to Abraham. Abraham is hanging out in what is now Iraq. He is a pagan, um, and God comes and reveals himself to him and tells him, move to Canaan, believe me, I will make you the father of many nations, I will bless you. Abraham believes God, it's credited to him as righteousness, and he does become the father of a great nation. Not just that Israel was the, the, you can see even here at the beginning, Israel is not the fulfillment of all of God's promises. God's promise was to make him the father of a great nation, but worldly empires come and go. And so Israel was a one manifestation of that reality, but never the full and the complete and the perfect one. The church of Jesus Christ is the full, complete, perfect one. And in that sense, Abraham is the father of that nation as well. We are all sons and daughters of Abraham in that sense. Uh, And from his line, the savior of the world came. 2000 BC, Jacob is born. Uh, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. We know that story. Uh, in Genesis, and that's important. And that nomenclature, those names of Jacob and Israel will be used for meaningful things along the way, but that's where we get the name for the nation of Israel, is from the son of Abraham, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Uh, He has 12 sons, and that's where you get the 12 tribes of Israel. All the names are from the names of the sons there, and the tribes fit with the ancestral lines. 1900, 100 years later, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in Egypt. He becomes an assistant of Pharaoh. He becomes a pretty important dude. And his fathers and brothers have to leave Canaan because of the famine. They don't know how they're going to eat. And because Joseph has been put into this position, what they intended for evil, God is used for good. And he is able to uh, save them and to persevere the nation of Israel even through that adversity. Fast forward, 1446 B.C. This is when the Exodus begins. There is 400 years of slavery in Egypt. 
400 years under the pharaohs, built making bricks without straw. And God, through Moses, leads his people out. And you would think they'd be pretty excited about that, but of course they get out in the desert, and the first thing they do is grumble about the God who's leading them, and the way that he's leading them, and the direction that he's leading them, and the food that he's giving them to eat while he's leading them. And so he says, fine, you can all die out here. Uh, And so Moses brings them to the border of Canaan, uh, which is what God had promised to Abraham. This is the promised land. 1406 is when Israel begins establishing itself as a sovereign country. So this is when national Israel is born. Joshua leads the Israelites into Canaan. Moses doesn't get that privilege because of his sin. And so they begin conquering the land. They begin, God gives them victory over these various tribes. They take all of this land in. And that establishes geographic Israel for the first time in history. So for the first many years of Israel's national and civil existence, they are ruled by judges rather than kings. This makes them distinct from the nations around them. God is their king, and so what they need is not a king, an executive who will tell them what to do. They need judges who will interpret for them whether or not what they're doing is what they're supposed to do, who will guide them and lead them, but not instruct them, not, instruct's not a good word there, but you see what I mean, the difference between the executive and the judiciary? The executive makes the law. That's what kings are supposed to do, decide what's right and wrong. God's already done that, so Israel doesn't need that. Israel needs judges who will tell the people whether what they're doing matches God's law or not. Um, And so this is great, because the judges are leading the people of Israel, and everything is, uh, is great. But the people don't like this. It's not great because all the other nations have kings and we want a king and that's what everybody needs is a king. All the cool kids have a king and God says, fine, you want a king? Hey, Saul, come be king. And then the people are like, oh, this king thing. No, no good. Um, So the people turn away from God. They demand to have a king. Saul becomes king and he reigns for about 40 years. So you see how we got from slavery in Egypt to now a nation with a king. That's the six, 500 years we just compressed into one slide. After Saul, David becomes king. These are pretty familiar stories in the books of Samuel. David follows Saul, reigns for 40 years. He's a good king, not a perfect king. The Bible's filled with evidences and description of David's sin, but it's also filled with evidences of David's repentance and his willingness to come before the Lord and admit um, his faithlessness compared to God's faithfulness. And so God blesses him. And Israel expands rapidly under the rule of David. Israel becomes a large, blessed nation, a big deal because of David's faithfulness. And I think it is really important for us to remember um, that the greatest expansion, the greatest blessing, comes in response to faithfulness by Israel and primarily faithfulness by David, who is somebody we know to be deeply flawed and filled with sin. Big sins, not little sins, really big sins. And yet God blesses his people anyway because faithfulness is repentance. It's not perfection, uh, this side of glory. 
His son Solomon becomes king. Hopefully we know something about this. Having recently studied Ecclesiastes, Solomon reigns also about 40 years. Solomon builds a temple. That's what we've been reading in our Old Testament reading in the service as we read through the book of 1 Kings. Is God giving very specific instructions to Solomon about the temple that's to be built, the house that would hold his glory on earth. And uh, so Solomon oversees this, takes about 10 years under his reign. The temple's built, 960. And then over the course of Solomon's 40-year reign, he would become increasingly unfaithful to God. It's a dispute as to where he ended up. I put my cards on the table with Ecclesiastes. But either way, it's certainly the case that he was not faithful the way his father was faithful. And, uh, and so the, the kingdom, uh, there began to be chinks in the armor with regards to the kingdom. So it only takes a few years after Solomon's death that the kingdom of Israel splits. And the southern kingdom is Judah, the city of Jerusalem. And the northern kingdom, called Israel, is a pain in the neck. (laughs) And these are brothers, brothering countries, and they treat each other like brothers. And it's really bad. And eventually it will become not even... um, unrecognizable that they are siblings. There'll be real evil uh, that the North tries to perpetrate on the South. Fast forward a long time. So they go about 200 years of this divided kingdom, divided rule. Um, As we read Jonah, as we've talked about other minor prophet books in the sermons, we've talked about the the future fall of the kingdom. And from Ecclesiastes, we talked about the fall of the northern kingdom. That's what happens here in 721. They're conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire becomes the global superpower. They don't, uh, they don't conquer the southern kingdom, Judah, but they do conquer the northern kingdom. Uh, it's bad. The Assyrians are brutal. The Assyrians torture people, uh, rape people, decapitate people. It's really, really bad. Um, the Assyrians' goal is total uh, elimination of the cultures that they conquered. And so they'll either kill you or they'll assimilate you, usually some version of both. But their goal is to wipe off out your identity from the books of history. And things like this are important to remember, too, because people will criticize uh, God or Scripture, or sometimes we will wonder, why is God so violent in the Old Testament? Why does he give Israel permission to go in and just kill these, these nations, men, women, and children? These are the nations that God is calling his people to kill. These are not innocent people. This is, this is not good people who just aren't Jews or who aren't uh, um, Christians. These are murderers and rapists, and idolatry would be enough, not for us. It certainly is for God. But for God, idolatry is an offensive enough sin that he is completely justified to, to put an end to a nation. So this is really bad. The Syrians were bad, bad. So let's pause for just a moment, because this is where we are in history. Let's take a brief aside and look at the kings of each kingdom. As this is happening, and we're not going to go into detail about these, but what I've done is on the left, you've got the southern kingdom. On the right, you've got the northern kingdom. And then the phrase that scripture gives us that basically captures that person's rule in a nutshell. So Rehoboam, Judah did evil. Uh, Abijah walked in the sins of his father, no better than Rehoboam. 
Asa did what was right. Jehoshaphat did what was right. So in the southern kingdom so far, we're 50-50. Northern kingdom, Jeroboam, the sin of the house. Nadab did evil. Baasha did evil. Elah made Israel sin. Zimri doing evil. Omri did evil worse than all before him until Ahab, his son, who did evil more than all before him. Ahaziah did evil. Joram did evil. Go to, back to the southern for a minute. <laughs> Jehoram, you got your third uh, uh, walked in the ways of the, of the house of Israel. That's not a good thing, you guys. Uh, walked in the ways of the house of Ahab. Uh, some of these reigns, which we'll get to in a minute, these reigns last two days for some of these kings because there's a bunch of uh, uh, treasonous plans and fighting. But now you're back to Joash and Amaziah, who did what was right. So in the southern kingdom, you have a couple faithful kings there along the way. Uzziah that we read about in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 6 picks up where Uzziah died. Uh, but good king, Jotham, good king. Then you get to Ahaz was a problem. Hezekiah was good. Manasseh was bad, but repented. Uh, and then Ammon did the bad without the repentance of his father. You look back at the northern kingdom, a uh, lot of variety in this kingdom, took no heed to walk in the way of the Lord. And then Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, Zechariah, all of them did evil. They all did evil. Uh, keep going. Shalom led a conspiracy. That's what got him, uh, the other guy killed. Menahem did evil. Uh, Pekahiah did evil. Pekah did evil. Hashiah did evil, but hey, not so bad compared to the people before him. And then you go back to the southern kingdom. Josiah was good, but then it's all downhill from there. Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zechadiah. Um, so, northern kingdom, this is where we were talking about on our timeline. Hoshea. This is where they get conquered by the Assyrians. And then southern kingdom, it's going to be another couple hundred years. We'll get to that in just a moment as we go through the history. But you see, the northern kingdom had uh, a problem with their kings. None of them was faithful. The northern kingdom was in rebellion against God, was in rebellion against Yahweh and uh, his prophets. And so it was all downhill from there. Not a lot better for the southern kingdom, for Judah, but 200 years better because of some faithful kings along the way who returned the people to faithfulness. Back to our timeline. 612 is when Babylon conquers Nineveh. So remember, Nineveh is the seat of the Assyrian Empire, and I just said that the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. But then Babylon comes and conquers the Assyrian kingdom. This is... um, this is also in fulfillment of... Pro- all of this is in fulfillment of prophecy. This one is because the I told you that the Assyrians, when they conquered the northern kingdom, did such evil things and were so brutal and vicious. So because of that, the prophet uh, Nahum had said, this will come back on you. You will be carried away the way we were carried away. You will blah. And then God did that, not through his own people, the Israelites. He did it by rising up the Babylonians to bring this judgment on Assyria. Well, uh, it's pretty close to Judah geographically. And so this Babylonian empire that's now grown and has taken over a big space starts to really have some influence under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. This is where you start to see even more and more unfaithful kings in Israel's history, more and more willingness uh, to uh, tolerate idolatry. And then Nebuchadnezzar... uh, 
takes Jews as captives and then kind of uses them as hostage to, uh, to put Judah kind of in her place. And then they, 597, just out and out attack Judah. The Babylonian Empire decides that they want, uh, cap, they, they want this territory. Um, Ezekiel, who himself was taken captive, explains that this is God's judgment because the people have been unfaithful. They will not fall. They will be attacked. We read some of these stories. We talked about this from our last Old Testament reading. This is not when they will fall, but this is kind of this is God's. I'm going to use the phrase "last warning." Probably not last warning, but it should have been the wake-up call of Hey, these really terrible things are going to happen unless you return to faithfulness. He lets the really terrible thing get 99% of the way there, and then he miraculously holds off their destruction. And, of course, they don't turn back anyway. So then, 11 years later, 586, is when Israel does fall to Babylon. They destroy Solomon's temple. They destroy the city of Jerusalem. They take, this is the great captivity, where they take lots of Jews into captivity in Babylon. 586 to 573, Nebuchadnezzar wants to expand his kingdom, so he begins attacking. He attacks some of the smaller kingdoms around. This is a 13-year siege of the Phoenician Empire, uh, but he made the wrong enemies, and so Babylon ends up, other people swarm, and Babylon's fighting wars on too many fronts. And finally, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, eh, join together, and together they can conquer Babylon. And so this it always happens after the big ruler dies. The big ruler dies, it, it doesn't leave a good succession plan, uh, and the empire begins to lose power. And so now we're at the end of the Babylonians. But Cyrus turns out to be a great pagan Gentile leader. He doesn't believe that you destroy the culture and the people in all these other nations and go for complete assimilation or destruction. He just wants to be in charge of a great empire, and so he's fine with letting people have their own religion, have their own territory, as long as they are under his authority. Um, And so he begins to release the captives and to let them go back to Israel. And again, if you read your Old Testament, this is all covered thoroughly there. And that allows for what I'd call the re-rise of Israel. Many of the Jews... uh, Now, this is an interesting point of biblical history, and we read about this in the prophets, that a surprisingly small number of the Jews wanted to return because life was so good for them in Babylon uh, and in the territories that would follow. But many of them do return and... They begin the work on rebuilding the temple 50 years after it was destroyed. They start this work up. The minor prophets will talk about how this work gets started, and then they kind of lose their enthusiasm for it, and this work gets put on hold. And so the prophets will have to call God's people to actually get this house finished. Uh, And so it finally is finished and dedicated in 516, 20 years after they started rebuilding it, 70 years after the Temple of Solomon was destroyed. Then the Greeks. This is Alexander the Great. If you're a historian, the Greeks bring the defeat of the Medo-Persian armies. Uh, The Persian Empire is defeated in Macedonia. This is the rise of the Greek Empire. So the Greek Empire begins here. The, The Phoenician Empire falls shortly after that. And so now the whole world is going to belong to the Greeks. 
So it's about 332 BC when the Greek Empire comes in its kind of the fullness of its ascendancy. So the Greek is a big deal starting now. 250, this is when a Greek ruler asks the Jews to have the Old Testament translated into the Greek language. And that's where we get the Septuagint, which I referred to a couple weeks ago. First Greek translation of the Old Testament. You had good rulers and bad rulers along the way. Good rulers were the ones that would basically leave the Jews alone. Bad rulers were the ones that wanted to inflict harm and torture people. Antiochus Epiphanes was uh, on the bad side of this. He was a ruler of Syria. They were 175-164. His goal is to destroy the Jewish religion. His goal is to defile the religion. Anything that was unclean that he could put into the temple, he was always happy to do that. He was a worker of great evil. So this is what the Jews in Jesus' day are only less than 200 years, 150 years removed from. When you get a bad ruler, he could try to wipe out your entire culture and system. But then you have a couple good rulers after him, and so now you've got the time of the Maccabees. This is relative independence, where... The rulers of the Greek Empire figure out, eh, you know, probably one of the best things to do here is just let them do their own thing, make sure they pay their taxes. Um, And uh, this is a hundred-year time of relative peace. They do not have political independence. They are not politically free. And then 63 BC is when the Greek Empire, at the death of Alexander the Great, becomes weaker. Same story, repeats itself over and over again throughout history. Their empire is weaker, it's divided up. The Roman Empire increases, and that's when the Roman Empire, Pompeii, takes over. And now suddenly the Romans are what matters in the world, not the Greeks. And that happens right before the time of Christ. And then about 5 BC, Christ is born in fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah. So now we've made it all the way to Jesus. Jesus ministers 30 years. 80, 28-ish crucifixion, resurrection. I say ish. You would think that because this wasn't so long ago, we would be really great at nailing the dates down. The problem is the calendars got changed several times throughout history between then and now. Some renumbering and just changing calendar systems entirely. AD 70 is the fall of Israel. The Roman army destroys Jerusalem and the temple and raises it to the ground. Not one stone left upon another. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said 1.1 million Jews were killed. And this is the end of national Israel. There is no territorially sovereign Israel from AD 70 until 1947. As far as God is concerned, here's my first truly controversial statement of the class. As far as God is concerned, this is the end of Israel. His purposes in Israel were accomplished. From Israel came the Messiah. From Israel came the Savior of the world. Ethnic Jews will go on, because that's how genetics and DNA works. And the gospel is freely available to any ethnic Jew. But as far as God is concerned, this is the end of Israel. Because Israel was always a kind of intermediate state, a shadow of the church. Israel was no more the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham than Canaan 
was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Canaan was a shadow of a new heavens and a new earth, the, the real promised land. And Israel was a shadow of a, a new kingdom, which was the kingdom of Christ, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And so eighty seventy is God's final word on national sovereign Israel. So what do you learn from all of that, from Israel's history? I don't expect you to remember the any of the king's names or um, but there are a few really important takeaways, especially as we go into the minor prophets. How about turmoil? <laughs> Constant turnover of kings. I mean we did that whole timeline. The period that Israel was under the rule of kings was a really short period on the timeline. And I had to get through four slides to make all the kings fit. Constant turnover of kings. There were a few. Ahab ruled uh, 22 years. King Uzziah, who was faithful, ruled 52 years. But then you've got a ton with these teeny tiny reigns. Elah was two years. Zimri was seven days. Azahiah was two years. Zechariah was six months. Shalom was one month. It's just constant turnover and turmoil and instability. And then if you just think back mentally about those slides of the kings, if you had to sum up Israel's kings, both kingdoms, in one word, what would your word be? Evil. Evil! These are bad kings. Again, there were exceptions in the southern kingdom from time to time. But for the most part, they were really bad. So you have turmoil, you have bad kings, you have... You're surrounded all the time by geopolitical chaos. These other empires that I went through, you had heard of all of them. You probably couldn't have put them in order historically, but you had heard of the Medes and the Persians. You knew the Greeks were going to be a big deal. You knew the Romans were coming. You knew that Babylonia was a thing. Those are huge empires. And they fell. They all fell very little stability. And so military and political threats are always around Israel. After the time of Solomon, when the kingdom becomes divided, Israel is not an impressive military or political force anymore. It's very short-lived where Israel is sort of the bright shining light of the nations. They pretty much become a punching bag after Solomon. And so you have if, if you put yourselves in the shoes of average Joe or Jane Jew, how are you going to feel? What do you think life is like living in Israel? Hopeless? Fe- yeah, unsettled. Yeah. Waiting for the next shoe to drop all the time. And I think. If you don't believe that Yahweh is who he says he is, you're pretty religiously indifferent. Because your experience and your parents' experience and your parents' parents' experience is, yeah, we're supposedly God's people and look at all this junk that keeps happening to us. And they don't see their sin and unfaithfulness being the cause. They just see that God made these promises and our social, national life is still pretty unsettled and miserable. So what's the point? And so you get a lot of religious indifference. 
All right, genre. Prophecy. The two big questions are, what is it? And then what do we do with it? (laughs) Uh, How do we read it? Prophecy has two meanings. One meaning is God's word for God's people. Most of the time when you're talking about prophecy, you're talking about God's word for God's people. But most of the time when we say prophecy, we're thinking about the other meaning, which is a type of prophecy called predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy is a prophecy about the future. It's somebody saying something about what is going to take place in the future that you otherwise wouldn't have known about. And so this is an important thing to know about prophecy. Prophecy is God's word for God's people. Predictive prophecy, telling the future kind of thing, is just one kind of prophecy. It's the kind we care the most about because otherwise we don't care what God has to say. We don't care that God has to say that our behavior is really bad. We don't care that God has to say that you know we've made our own bed and that's why these things are rough. We want God to tell us what's going to happen in the future. And so that's what we care about. But predictive prophecy is just one uh, type of prophecy. And even predictive prophecy comes in different forms. One is predictions that are qualified by assurances. Amos 1, Jeremiah 22, where God makes an oath. This is what I will do, period. Full stop. No conditions, no exceptions. This is what I am going to do. Amos 1, I will not turn back. Jeremiah 22, where God says, as I live, here's what's going to happen. The only contingency to make that happen is that God is still God. That's a pretty sure thing. So those are assurances around those prophecies. Another kinds are qualifications by conditions. These happen a lot. Um, And there's two kinds of these, unipolar and bipolar. Bipolar just gives you both. If you do good, here is the good you will get. If you do bad, here is the bad you will get. You get both ends of that, both poles of that sphere. If you're willing and obedient, here's what will happen. If you refuse and rebel, this other thing's going to happen. That's bipolar. Unipolar just gives you one. If you are not faithful, you will not stand at all. If you mend your ways, then I will cause you to dwell in your place. But those specific prophecies do not explicitly tell you, okay, but what if we are faithful? Or what if we don't mend our ways? They don't tell you. They only give you one half. And then there are predictions without expressed qualifications. So this is one like in Jonah. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. One of the critical aspects to reading biblical prophecy is to understand the conditions that are always present in God's word. Just because Isaiah 7-9 doesn't give you the other side of that coin, that doesn't mean the other side isn't there. It's implicit that if you are faithful, you will stand. And that matters because that, that seems pretty obvious, right? Okay, yeah, he said one. We give it to you. Yeah, but what about when you get to these? You interpret them exactly the same way. When you get to the ones without express qualifications... There will be times where you interpret it exactly the same way. And Nineveh is a perfect example of that. How do we know that that promise should be implied? Because it's what actually happened. They repented and God did not destroy Nineveh. (laughs) 
And so as we learn to read our Bibles, we see, okay, in this type of writing, in this predictive prophecy, there are going to be times where even though the qualification is not given, that just means it's not expressed. That doesn't mean it's not present. Here's a second really important thing for us as we get ready to read the Minor Prophets. It's prophetic perspective. So I'm using Joel 2 as the example, but this happens in a lot of places. You read these these phrases from Joel 2. God's Spirit will be poured out. God's people will see wonders from the heavens and earth. People will be saved by calling out on His name. He'll bring back the captives and he'll gather all the nations for judgment. That is in one four-verse span of Joel. And this will happen a lot in the prophets where salvation and judgment are, are squished into the same event. And this is just a function of the, the what's called progressive revelation, that God revealed himself more clearly, more specifically, in more detail to his people over time. Think about what he said to Abraham. That's not quite as clear as what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28, is it? It gives more clarity. So the Old Testament prophets were given God's vision of reclaiming his people, saving them from their sins, and gathering in the nations and pouring out judgment on unbelief. What they were not shown was that those events are not in the same moment. They're not even on the same day. And in fact, we don't know yet how much time is in between those two events. The day of salvation has come. The day of judgment is what we wait for. And so we shouldn't be surprised sometimes when we read the Old Testament prophets and from their perspective, these are quashed together. What they see as one big event, God will eventually reveal to us is a a series of events or separate events that are separated by some time and we actually live in between them. Finally, something else we're going to consider is how to apply it in the New Testament era. Because we have to think about two different things. One is, what did the prophecy mean to the original audience at the time it was spoken? And did that prophecy also mean something else of which that first one was a shadow? So we've already talked about this several times today. You think about the promise to Abraham. That promise was not about rest in Canaan. Rest in Canaan was fulfillment of that promise, but it wasn't the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Being the father of many nations, Israel was not the, it was a fulfillment of that, but it wasn't the ultimate. That's the church. And this is going to happen again and again and again. That as we look through the Old Testament prophecies, we're going to have to see, does this apply just to the people in front of the prophet? Or is that going to be one manifestation that's just a shadow of the ultimate manifestation that will come true uh, in the age of the church. And so there's, there's three different ways to think about applying the Old Testament prophecies. And what ends up happening is the dividing lines for which one of these we take determines our end times view. <laughs> that, that these are, this is what gets connected here. Is the people in group one that the prophecies and promises are for Israel, national Israel, and not for the church. Well, those end up being the dispensational premillennialists, the ones that say Israel has to come back and you have to have national Israel so that these promises made to them can be fulfilled. Uh, The church is a separate and distinct plan of God. We've got to have the thousand year reign of peace. 
and, and Jesus has to come back before that to inaugurate that, that's because you're going to read all of these Old Testament prophecies and say, no, a Jewish prophet said these prophecies to Jewish people in the nation of Israel, therefore they can only apply to Jewish people in the nation of Israel. So we've got to get back to that. The second category is to say, uh, it's what the, the, the end times view is called progressive dispensationalism. It's more modern dispensationalist or historical premillennialists. This idea that both are true. <laughs> there are promises that are entirely and only for the nation of Israel, and it's just blending. And then the last one is, no, Israel was always about the church. Canaan was always about the new heavens and the new earth. The sacrificial system was always about Jesus. And so those things were true in as far as they went. But God was constantly telling his people, these things never go far enough. You need Christ. Christ, the ultimate revelation. That is when these things will go far enough. That's what they're all about. So we would say, you know, promises that are specific to a people of Israel are fulfilled through the preaching of the gospel to the world that includes Israel. The fact that Jews can be saved just like Greeks and pagans and just like us, that is God's fulfillment of spiritual promises to national Israel. Uh, And then promises of material blessing, these are fulfilled now in many ways, as you see the blessing that God pours on his own people, but they'll really be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth as we are in the promised land and live under God's blessing fully.